Before we get into today's episode, I've created a short questionnaire that will help me get to know you better. Those that fill out the questionnaire will get entered into a draw to win an Amazon gift card. So there's a link in the description for the episode. Click it, fill out the questionnaire, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Now for today's episode. This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. And today I'm joined with Tufik Gilday, who is an award-winning orthopedic surgeon with MSU Healthcare Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. That is a bit of a mouthful, but he works with athletes from MSU and also the US Olympic ski and snowboarding team. So Tufik, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. So I need to know how you actually got involved with athletes, because if I'm not mistaken you actually had a bit of a musician yourself and actually performed in bars and clubs and things and now you're working with olympic athletes so how did you get started yeah so let's start with the musician part growing up i loved playing guitar it was probably my favorite thing to do growing up and as i rose through the grades and was in high school i formed a band with some of my colleagues and peers and yes uh to make you know, to pass time, uh, we used to play at local bars around East Lansing, the community I grew up, um, and we were too young. So as a reward, we used to ha- do this for free food, and we used to primarily play classic rock and blues, you know, stuff from the 60s, 70s. Now, as I progressed to the university, I majored in biochemistry and molecular biology from Michigan State University, where I'm currently employed. And that really taught me how to see the world from an analytical perspective. And very early on, I decided that I wanted to go to medical school. So one thing led to another. I went to medical school uh, at Wayne State University in Detroit. I attended Henry Ford Health System in Detroit for residency. And uh, I did my residency in orthopedic surgery. And it was there I realized how much I loved working with athletes. And I pursued a specialized sports medicine fellowship at the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado. So you spent a lot of time in the medical field and then sort of branched off into athletics or did you start off that way? Yeah, I spent a a long time training. Uh, My training consisted of four years of undergraduate, four years of medical school, five years of orthopedic surgery specialty training, and then a one-year subspecialty in sports medicine. So would you say that you needed the experience to then progress like a lot of people that are in the medical field tend to work on the job learn on the job and then they kind of progress while they're working is that kind of how it works well and and from the surgical standpoint yes but you know there's many avenues to sports medicine uh for instance i work with many athletic trainers who get pretty high degrees of exposure at a very young age um and some of those athletic trainers actually pivot to medical school later on in their careers uh, you know, depending on their desire to pursue, uh, a, you know, a surgical or non-surgical approach to these athletes. What I've come to understand about athletics and sports is there's a high degree of, I guess, respect for people that don't necessarily pick up injuries while they're performing. It's amazing how injuries can take people out of action, really, like their careers halted because of injuries. And I know one of the things that you're quite I guess smart with is helping athletes prevent injuries and working with them to improve their performance at the same time so I'd be curious about how athletes prioritize things like injury prevention over let's just say 
running faster or jumping higher? How important is preventing injury to these people? Oh, it's imperative. And, you know, I work very closely with a great group of, of athletic trainers who, who those athletic trainers work with athletes day in and day out. And um, I like to emphasize with the athletic trainers that uh, how important concentric strengthening is, how important sports specific conditioning is, and how important really rest is. You know, we've really faced a paradigm change in the last decade or so. Historically, many athletes like to work, 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 and rest and recovery were really uh, second fiddle. Um, but in recent years, data has shown that rest and recovery is more important to the successful athlete than, than uh, or just as important as their performance on the field or in practice. So is that more of a athletes becoming wiser, like they're learning from mistakes, do you think? Or do you think it's more of a knowledge base increase, which means that they inevitably are going to be a bit smarter about how they do things? I think it's a mixture of both. I think there's been a huge drive in the scientific literature to prove how important rest and recovery are. And moreover, I think that a lot of athletes have taken uh, the teachings of some of their mentors like LeBron James or Tom Brady, who still work very hard, but have a greater priority on good conditioning, nutrition, technique, and sleep, both in and out of season. I find it crazy how hard athletes can work in relation to, let's say, a good night's sleep, fairly straightforward um, example to use. But I found that even myself, like who would describe themselves as average, maybe below average, a good night's sleep is essential for everything from like just how my nervous system feels, like how strong I feel in myself can make a big difference in how well I can do things, never mind athletes. And there's so much to it that it makes me think, okay, is there anything that's more important anything that's a priority like if you were to speak to an athlete and say okay these three things you want to prioritize for recovery and preventing injury over all of the others are the three main things to think about yeah well we started off with sleep and and i definitely agree with all the sentiments that you conveyed there uh number two nutrition um for some that may be quite obvious for others it may not be as obvious but you know, having the correct nutrition in a diet with high in protein, uh, high in good carbohydrates, low in simple sugars and, and uh, trans fats can really boost your performance. And there's been a huge paradigm change in that as well. Uh, historically, a lot of athletes would be eating candy, et cetera, before games. But now you're starting to see a huge paradigm shift in people eating uh, brown rice and salmon and the such. Um, so that's number two. And number three, um, I think uh, uh, a good training regimen that's sports specific that concentrically strengthens muscles. And I'd like to go into that a little bit. Um, let's say you're a basketball player. Uh, you may be predisposed to strengthening certain muscles just by virtue of playing your game often and, and letting other muscles atrophy, so to speak. Um, but I think it's important to strengthen all muscles concentrically because muscle imbalances can really lead to some disastrous stress injuries down the line. So for those that are unsure, concentric is the muscle shortening. Is that right? Correct. And and when I say concentric in this context, I mean uh, uh, both both strengthening uh, a muscle that does one action and strengthening a muscle that does the the opposite action as well. Right. So if we use the bicep curl as an example, for those that probably need a bit of help here, the bicep would be the one that's shortening if you're bending the arm and then you're strengthening the 
tricep as well as the reverse muscle. So do strengthening both sides of the arm, let's just say, to keep things straightforward. Does that enhance someone's ability to bend the arm by strengthening opposing sides? Uh, in, in some regards, yes, but I think maybe a better example would be the quadriceps in your leg, the, the muscle in the front and the hamstrings in the back. Um, you know, some data has shown that, uh, let's take ACL tears, for instance, uh, patients are at an increased risk of ACL tears in the knee because of a muscle imbalance of the quadriceps versus the hamstring. So when I say concentric strengthening, I'm saying that, you know, although an athlete might have very strong quads from the virtue of playing their sport, it's important to strengthen the hamstrings as well as those may be protective for ACL tears. That makes sense. Is there like any ways that you can test things like imbalances or weaknesses? Because sometimes someone might just not be aware of it. And then all of a sudden they're competing, they're playing their sport or activity. And then all of a sudden their, their ACL will go and you can hear it. And the whole stadium starts to hear this great big snap of attendance. So is it a way you can test for it? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I would defer to uh, a physical therapist or a, another healthcare expert um, if you're trying to test your own muscles, but certainly these muscle imbalances can be tested very easily in an office or even a therapy setting. What are some of the misconceptions that people have with surgery and athletes? And what are some of the myths that people actually have? Because I found that some people may have built a story in their own head about the kind of work that you're doing and how athletes get surgery, that sort of thing. Is there anything that people get wrong? Globally, I, I think it's important to emphasize that surgery does not have to be stressful. I think that it's really the responsibility of your surgeon uh, to make sure that you as a patient or a loved one are, are fully understanding of the risks and benefits of the surgery and uh, really comfortable with the plan going forward. And I, I think that, um, Comfort with surgery really starts from there. That, I mean, if you undergo surgery, it doesn't mean you need to stay in the hospital uh, for an extended period of time. Most of my surgeries are outpatient. In other words, most of my patients are discharged within the same day, and that includes my joint replacements. And I think that's important to emphasize it as well. And then uh, another myth is that if a surgery goes long, it indicates that something went wrong. Uh, I think that's a myth that's completely untrue. There's a lot that can happen in the OR, and it not necessarily means that things go bad, just that uh, either your surgeon's taking his time or maybe uh, there's a nursing change, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, but I think that those three things are, are kind of important to emphasize from a, from a surgical perspective. Now, working with athletes. This is the difficult part. So surgery is one thing working with athletes, but I think that athletes are so motivated to get back to sport and so performance driven. Um, I think that periods of non-weight bearing or periods in which they cannot participate in sport drive a lot of athletes crazy. And I think it's really important to emphasize that, you know, after a surgical repair, there's always a tenuous period in which you have to allow the structures to heal and it's very important to comply with some of the post-operative restrictions sent forth by your surgeon. So you work primarily in like skiing and snowboarding, which off the top of my head makes me think that's heavily dependent on the health of your knees and your ability to absorb shock and all those things. I guess that's why you mentioned ACL tears before, because a lot of the, the work that people do in those sports, I imagine, is more lower body dominant. I'm probably wrong. But what's it like behind the scenes for those athletes? What's it like for you working with them? 
Yeah, the skiing snowboard team, those are some incredible athletes. And definitely they're they're the same, but also much different than the football and basketball athletes I take care of regularly here in East Lansing. Uh, so skiing training, let's start with that. Training starts very early in the morning for uh, a lot of the professional skiing snowboarders. And uh, the sessions can be quite long or it can be split up into multiple sessions throughout the day. And I think it's important that training on a mountain uh, with variable weather conditions and variable amounts of ice is a lot different than training on a football turf or a basketball field or a soccer pitch. Um, so I noticed that skiers and snowboarders really uh, take uh, a while to really analyze the course that they're about to compete in because, you know, their sport is a matter of seconds and, and small changes in environment can have huge implications on their performance. Now, from a training standpoint, these athletes certainly spend a long time concentrically, uh, as we spoke about strengthening their lower body and making sure that their muscle endurance is in top shape, uh, which is true for both soccer and basketball uh, and, and football athletes. But uh, the muscle endurance uh, is a little bit different than those athletes as well. How big of a difference can it make? Because you mentioned that it's a game of seconds, but even something as simple as, I don't know, maybe the ground isn't quite soft enough and there's a bit too much friction under the, the feet, that, that kind of thing. If that can make a difference, can someone's physical condition make up those seconds? As in, if something that's out of your control is affecting your run time, can you make up the difference by being physically healthier and stronger? Oh, I think that's certainly the case. And we can all turn to the most recent Winter Olympics in China to, to see that, for example. Uh, the uh, terrain there was notoriously icy and difficult to navigate. And I think that really exposed two things. Number one, it exposed uh, uh, athlete, uh, how their physical endurance and, and uh, their their health in that regard. And number two, it really it really exposed an athlete's ability to uh, their natural inherent skill and their ability to navigate that course as well. Is flexibility a big part of that then when you sit and think, okay, if the terrain isn't that great, I've got to be able to perform my best. And if they are more ideal conditions, then you'll naturally speed up. They, they've got to go out there and perform in a way without really knowing what's coming like what's going to be ahead and they've still got to do that at speed i mean some of the speeds that they're able to generate are just insane and they've got to be flexible and adaptive in that scenario at speed that must take a lot of practice and training and also a willingness to accept that it might not go 100 your way oh absolutely and i think that we cannot discount the cognitive portion of of the sport as well uh, remaining dynamic and flexible and, and adaptable is really important for these athletes. And I, I think that translates to other sports as well. The difference being is that these, these guys in skiing and snowboarding are going at very quick speeds and generate a lot of force. What are some of the best things that you yourself have done as a surgeon? Because I hear that you do a lot of re research into non-opioid related studies and I wonder if that's for like pain relief or addiction I mean there's a lot of talk about the addiction side as well so share a bit about the work that you're doing with non-opioid use yeah so where I trained in Detroit Michigan uh, we took care of a lot of patients uh, both uh, 
many of which were addicted to opioids pre-existing and many of which were not. And, and three facts became very apparent to us as, as surgeons. Number one, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, opioid prescriptions rose from a rate of approximately 76 million in 1990 to 225 million in 2012. Wow. I know. Number two, there's been a six-fold increase in opioid-related deaths from uh, 1990 to 2017, so just about a similar time frame. And lastly, uh, we noticed, and the literature has bore out, that orthopedic and spine conditions accounted for almost 30% of opioid prescriptions in the U.S., and many people were first introduced to opioids through orthopedic conditions. So we identified this as a problem, and our, we our ultimate goal was to actually take care of these patients without opioids whatsoever, but this had to be carried through multiple phases. So phase one, we performed a case series of 141 patients. And by case series, I mean, we gave patients undergoing sports surgeries, and those included ACL surgery, meniscus surgery, labrum surgery, and rotator cuff surgery, our custom-made protocol, which we'll go into momentarily, and we sent all these patients home with a small dose of narcotics, only 10 pills to be taken for emergency. And we found that actually 45% of our patients on their own accord did not take any narcotics whatsoever. And we found that to be fairly significant. And we predicated our future studies on this fact as well. Now, talking about our pain protocol, it's, it's quite involved. And we custom tailored our protocol to the human healing experiences. And our intention here was to target uh, human pain pathways at multiple helps, uh, multiple points, excuse me, to help mitigate pain uh, at its source rather than a single agent addictive opioid. So once we proved in theory that this protocol could work, we designed four randomized controlled trials. And what I mean by randomized controlled trials uh, is that uh, the surgeon uh, and the treatment team was blinded to which pain protocol the patients got. And in these, in these randomized controlled trials, uh, half the patients, and these were completely randomized by a computer, got the gold standard, quote unquote, uh, I should say, of opioids here in the United States. And the other half got our novel non-narcotic non multimodal uh, pain protocol. And again, we did it. We did four studies, one in ACL surgery, one in meniscus surgery, one in rotator cuff surgery, and one in shoulder labrum surgery. And uh, as we speak, it's presently being validated in other surgeries as well. And interestingly enough, we found that our pain protocol, uh, and, and this is a summary of all four studies, provided equal, if not better, pain relief than the, the novel, the, the standard of care narcotics Um and that 100% uh, of our patients were satisfied without the addictive burden. So is that showing us then that these sort of standard pain medication, the help that they're getting is almost all of the positive, but with very little downside or was there a downside? Well, you know, there's no, there's no, no such thing in medicine as having 100% positive with no downside. So with my non-narcotic protocol, uh, the main side effect that's important to know is that patients often felt drowsy, um, and that can be likely attributed to the nerve relaxant gabapentin given in the protocol. However, I should note that uh, patients who are taking narcotics after surgery also feel drowsy. So it's, uh, as far as I'm concerned in that regard, it's a similar side effect in that patients feel drowsy. However, they do not have uh, the addictive burden. So does that, I guess, make it easier to uh, not not so much hide but easy for it to be randomized and controlled if one of the symptoms are the same that would add to the 
placebo effect, I guess, and not knowing which one they're taking if one of the negative downside side effects that they're experiencing is the same for both. Oh, that's absolutely true. But it's important to note that for the multimodal non-opioid protocol, these patients were taking many medicines at different times, <clears throat> whereas for the narcotic protocol, patients were only taking uh, essentially one medicine. So uh, patients were not blinded. It was just the surgeons that were blinded in this regard. So how do you, I guess, prescribe something that has, I guess, addictive properties with this? Are you on the positive side of the fence when it comes to opioids as long as they know what they're doing and take them responsibly or do you think they should be without them so although i i have uh, my team and i has have championed this non-narcotic protocol i do believe that in the right patients in the right scenarios and more importantly the right time there is a place for narcotics however uh since publishing these studies i've had many patients approach myself as well as some of my co-authors specifically asking for this non-opioid protocol. And I've only heard positive feedback about it. Um, but I should note that for some surgeries, such as my joint replacement surgeries that I do, I do prescribe a very small course of narcotics and lean very heavily on the principles of my non-narcotic protocol to really attack the pain generators at its source rather than creating the delusion, I should say, that pain doesn't exist, which is what narcotics do. So how do you actually make this, I guess, a practice? Because I know from some of the work that I've done that sometimes patients and clients, they want the feeling that the thing gives them. They want to also like tell their friends that they're taking it or whatever the case is. There's always a lot more going on when it comes to certain things. Like I know a couple of therapists that are like, oh, they just like telling their friends that they they have massages or they have a personal trainer because it makes them feel good about themselves. And, and yet you're there like trying to educate them about, okay, well, maybe we don't need to do this as often because of the side effects or whatever it is, but they're coming in almost set in their mind that they want this thing because they know that it'll work. And you've almost got to try and convince them that there's another way. Oh, that's a great question. There's certainly a social component to this, but there's been huge movements uh, in, in my area and I think globally throughout the United States to raise awareness of the uh, of the negative of opioid use and narcotics and uh, and, and medicines in, in that class. So I think these studies have been well timed in, in the greater greater society and, and that awareness has been risen. Now, I know that you spend a lot of time in surgery, working with athletes, helping them prevent injury. But I wonder if there's anything that, aside from the concentric stuff that we discussed, that if you wanted to be as injury-free as possible, I'm aware you probably can't really do this all the time, but what are some of the main things that you can share that can help people prevent injury, prevent the physical niggles that people tend to get? So uh, we, we talked about sports-specific training. We talked about sleep and nutrition. And uh, I, I think that warming up and increasing your body temperature prior to athletic activity is important to emphasize as well. Um, stretching has been shown to prevent muscle soreness, improve joint range of motion, and increase blood flow to the stretched region, which both increases performance while playing and recovery as well. Um, and I think it's also important to essentially just listen to your body, you know, uh, a minor ache or bruise and sprain is normal. But if you keep playing repeatedly on these on these ailments, uh, your body will tell you when something's wrong. So it's important to really listen. 
it was interesting when I was doing a little bit of research, this is years ago, by the way, so I don't know how up to date this is, but there were some kinds of stretching that would decrease performance initially. So when you do it as a warm-up, you're kind of reducing your, your power output in a way. I think the study I read was something about 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes before it then starts to return to normal, which makes me think, well, maybe you should do it as part of a daily practice to prevent injury rather than doing this stretching protocol before activity if you're hoping that it warms you up instead of making things worse. Oh, I, I would agree with that sentiment. Now, let's. I think there's multiple types of stretching, right? There's something called dynamic stretching where essentially you're moving around and you're stretching your body in that regard. And there's something called static stretching where you're trying to hold your body into place and putting the munch, the muscle under tension. And I think that your the studies that you saw were, were talking more about static stretching. And I think that you're right. Static stretching should be done more towards the end of the day. Um, and dynamic stretching should be performed more before athletic activity. It's interesting when you mention things like that. And I wonder if, people should start taking their daily life whether they're athletes or not as if it is like a workout because let's say we all do dynamic stretching every single morning and we all do static stretching every night whether you're average joe whether you're an athlete whether you have a sit-down job stand-up job whatever it is if we all treated it in that way do you think people would see a difference Oh, absolutely. I think that whether you're an athlete on the court or you work in an office, we can all derive a benefit from good stretching. And uh, I'd like to carry the conversation forward and extend it to core and glute strengthening. Um, I, I find that, uh, particularly in my office, not just with athletes, but in the people I see day to day, uh, people uh, have really weak cores and glutes. Um, and I think that a lot of force generation, a lot of postural strength, a lot of uh, uh, things that people encounter day to day really are predicated upon how strong their core and glutes are. Uh, and it can really lead to a, a decrease in pain and, in a, and a higher degree of functionality in your day to day life. How much time do you spend on back pain specifically? I know you clearly operate on people's like knees and hips and backs and things, but how many different ways are there that you could cause, let's say, lower back pain? And as you mentioned glutes and things, I know that I can have underactive glutes sometimes. I have to strengthen mine quite regularly to keep the, the activation there myself. And that does significantly reduce my back pain along with like core work not just abs but like core stability work so working on the more internal muscles as well so I know I've got two main causes of my own back pain when I feel it I can track it back to a particular thing that I need to spend more time on is there some kind of shopping list of things that might be causing people's back pain and what can we really do about it? Yeah, so back pain is interesting. It's a very sensitive area of your body to small aberrations in skeletal dynamics. Let's put it that way. So multiple things can cause back pain, right? You touched upon a couple of them, muscle imbalances. I think a lot of spinal cord conditions can cause quite a bit of back pain. A lot of hip conditions can actually refer to your back. A lot of conditions in your sacroiliac joint and, and hamstrings as well. And uh, I think a lot of, uh, in, in technical terms, we'll call it coronal and sagittal deformity, but I think in layman terms, we can say uh, uh, scoliotic disorders can cause back pain as well. 
Um, so it's a funny thing. Now, a little bit of back pain is normal. Let's say you carry boxes all day. It's normal to have back pain after that time. And the current medical recommendations is take some NSAIDs and carry on with your life. However, if you notice pain going down either leg or pain that's refractory to a good course of NSAIDs like ibuprofen or naproxen or, or uh, 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 the pain's lasting for a period of time, I think it's important to go see a medical professional because that could be a symptom of something that's significantly more serious. How would we judge normal versus not normal? Is it just the length of time that you experience it for? Like the amount of times a doctor would say, okay, after three or four days, you need to speak to somebody because it shouldn't go on for that long. But then everyone, I would imagine, have different timelines and how they would typically recover. One of the analogies that I've sometimes said to people is, I normally go off how long it would take for you to get over a cold. So it's a way of like assessing someone's immune system as like, okay, if it takes you a day or two to get over a, a head cold, then I would wait just a bit longer than that to see if the pain was to subside. And it depends on how well they sleep and do all the other things that we've mentioned, I guess. But how do we judge normal and abnormal? Well, I think there's definitely some warning signs to keep an eye out for. Um, I think that if you have pain in your groin, pain that radiates down either leg, extreme debilitating pain. So you touched upon this. I think the extent of the amount of pain that you feel. Uh, and when I say debilitating, it interferes with your ability to function in day-to-day life, like put on pants or use the bathroom. I think that it, it, it may signify a more serious issue that would merit seeing a healthcare professional. So there's no hard and fast rule per se, but I think that when you have one of those symptoms, it definitely merits going to see someone. I found that a lot of people tend to either self-diagnose or self-medicate. And in some ways, it's probably a response to their experience in the healthcare system. So when they have something that they want to be looked at or they want treated, sometimes you could be waiting weeks or even months before you even get to have it checked. I mean, I've had one incident myself when I've gotten better <laughs> before before I've actually gone to speak to the person that I needed to speak to and that's just all down to like rest recovery not being able to do as much just because of the thing I was experiencing that helped kind of forced me into recovery as you said listening to your body it forced me into this like resting state um but I think some people tend to do things on their own because it's quicker or it's more efficient if they Google it and figure it out from there. Now, I know that's not a good thing, but maybe you can talk to people a little bit about some of the dangers of doing things on your own. Yeah, so there's a term uh, that's that's spoken about. It's called Dr. Google. And what that refers to is patients that Google their medical condition, um, <laughs> look at the signs and symptoms, and diagnose themselves and carry out the treatment plan. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm actually quite impressed with the number of patients that actually, you know, diagnose themselves correctly, but I'm also impressed <laughs> with the number of them that don't. <laughs> so um, it's, that's important to mention uh, first. So, you know, it, you touch upon an interesting thing. So it's sometimes Googling your medical condition and, and starting your own treatment plan is not the worst thing, specifically if it's a minor sprain or strain. Um, and I think that's important that if you are inclined to do that, 
to really spend a little bit of time to uh, study some of the warning signs when you should see a medical professional, because you may have some of those warning signs and they might be ignored and they might be a symptom of something more serious. So we've mentioned things like pain radiating down the legs, pain in the groin. What about things like mental health as well? Now, I don't know how experienced you are with this, but it's becoming increasingly common now when someone will have an issue mentally, mindset, whatever it is. Maybe it is due to a, a chemical imbalance or an issue with the structure of the brain, whatever the case is. There's lots of different things that go into it. But what are some of the key things that, you can point to to help people with their mental health and their mindset because you work with athletes so they must have a mental health regimen alongside a physical one i'm assuming oh yes yeah. so although i'm not a licensed mental health professional i do spend a significant amount of time and and brain power really uh working with athletes through their mental health uh issues so let's say someone gets injured, it has a profound influence on uh, their performance. And again, these athletes that I work with are so performance driven that it inevitably has a huge implication on their day-to-day -day function and their mental health. What's interesting is uh, back to the pain control issue, uh, it, research shows that patients with pre-existing conditions like depression or anxiety have a harder time in controlling their pain. And I think that's uh, an interesting tie into some of the things we talked in previously. Um, now, regarding athletes with an injury, uh, I recommend that all my college athletes, uh, and I, I work in a high D1 uh, capacity, uh, speak to someone uh, if they sustain a bad injury. And I think that can only help with the healing process and help with, uh, with their own personal struggle, struggles in that they can't maintain a high level of performance. It's interesting that you bring that up actually two feet because when I often feel great, I do tend to recover from everything a lot quicker. And I know a lot of people listening probably feel the same way, but it's one of the hardest things to do is when you're in pain, when you're struggling, when day to day is so much harder than it would otherwise be to detach from that just enough to be in a more positive frame of mind and I wonder if you're aware of how your athletes do that how they're able to think positive even when physically they're they're struggling and they can't compete or can't even train in some ways now that's a very difficult question um again so whenever I see someone that gets injured I always recommend that they speak to someone but I speak myself and my practice spend a, a lot of time with my athletes, uh, helping them through the process and talking about the longitudinal course of things and uh, reassuring them that for most of the time, things will be okay. And you, there is a chance and there's a high probability that you'll be able to return back to the other level and that this is just part of the journey of being an athlete. Uh, let's look at some of our most preeminent athletes in, in our culture. Almost all of them have sustained a, a pretty tough injury. And many have said that, you know, despite the injury, uh, they saw it as a blessing because maybe it allowed them to focus on a different part of their game. Let's say they injured their right hand. Now they work on their left hand, for instance. And I try to remain optimistic with my athletes to show them that, you know, although this might not be ideal, let's not look at it as a negative and let's look at it a way to get better. I think that's a very important thing where they're able to make do with the injury as long as they're still functional, I'm guessing. Like if they break their leg, there's only so much you can do. 
but then you've got the mental training, you've got other things. There's always something that you can focus on instead of the the injury or the pain that you're feeling. I think that's a very important point because some people send, tend to focus so much on the pain and on the struggle that it almost keeps them there. Whereas if they focus on moving forwards, they tend to come out better. I agree. I think it's it's really part of my job. It's an unstated responsibility to sh- to illustrate that fact and that things do not always have to be negative. Yes, there is pain now and they're not there will not always be pain and that, you know, I'm really with my athletes and my patients through every step of the journey. Is there anything that you can think of that you would kick yourself if you hadn't had the chance to share or talk about or or discuss? Is there anything that you think, you know what, let's not leave any stone unturned here? this needs to be talked about and we need to focus on this as well? Well, that's a great question. You know, one thing that um, my team and I have been studying and that's really been exciting me is this concept of uh, blood flow restriction therapy. Uh, Do you have any any idea what that entails? If I remember right, it's the images of like, um, whether it's compression garments or some people just use string and things to restrict the blood flow to certain areas of the body. Is that is that kind of where we're going? Yeah. So it's a new physical therapy modality where you're correct. You essentially restrict your blood flow uh, to the more distal musculature and you perform exercises. Now, uh, preliminarily... Preliminary research on this has been very encouraging in that due to the blood flow restrictions, your body releases metabolites or chemicals that actually enhance muscle growth, and you're able to strengthen your extremity while putting a significantly lower load on that muscle. Um, And I think that's a pretty huge breakthrough in the realm of physical therapy, uh, specifically uh, where I'm concerned, uh, where I'm repairing a, a ligament or a tendon where you can't necessarily put a heavy load from the get-go. So is this similar to, like, let's say you would train at altitude to increase the red blood cell count so that you perform better or can work at higher intensity, at say, ground level? Is this the similar thing where you're applying it in a short term to increase the blood flow to the area, but that doesn't happen systemically forever? Like, it would obviously return back to normal, or do you see it having longer term effects? I think that's a great analogy. Um, The analogy you you spoke about, obviously, is for your lungs and red blood cells. Uh, It works in a very similar mechanism, but with distal musculature. What other benefits does it happen then? Does it help people recover from injury? Does it help people recover from sprains and things because of the increased blood flow? Like, Does it have more benefits than just increasing muscle? So my team and I are studying this, uh, again, in a randomized controlled fashion, uh, in patients, both undergoing upper extremity procedures like a rotator cuff tear and lower extremity procedures like an ACL tear as well. I think the full benefit um, has yet to be realized. And a lot of the uh, secondary benefits have been shown in animal models, but we're still looking for, for a full illustration of the benefit profile in humans. But yes, Uh, One of the benefits is strengthening, but I think that uh, there is a huge benefit for muscle regeneration uh, and growth as well, which are not always one in one with strengthening. I think that's quite an important point and discovery because it's something that everybody can do. It's not limited to 
I don't access to resources and things like that. Because someone could wear like a compression garment and that can have a similar effect to the kinds of things you might be able to do with athletes. I find it interesting how things trickle down almost from high performance sport and athletes and Olympians all the way down to your average person that might need a bit of help with their fitness goal or maybe they're recovering from injury themselves and they hear this thing that athletes are doing that they then want to try and implement it's almost like if an athlete shares more of the things that they do that naturally encourage your average person to do it as well oh yeah you know i find that kind of funny i remember being a kid and uh uh, watching the TV and seeing a commercial that so-and-so would drink whatever, you know, would drink milk, for instance. And then the next week I'm begging my dad to buy, uh, you know, an abundance of milk because, you know, whatever. <laughs> to drink it. So it's funny how how things can really permeate. But, you know, I think that does place a little pressure on the athletes to make sure that they, uh, the societal pressure, I should say, that they promote the right things. That's for sure. Is there a way of knowing like a sponsored ad versus something that they actually take? Like I saw, um, Herbal life, herbal life about six months ago or even a year ago now. And I'm looking at them thinking, I don't know if Ronaldo actually takes this stuff. Like I, I doubt it, but there's always that chance of maybe he does. Is it a way of knowing the difference or is that the beauty of them promoting the ad in a way that makes it look like they do actually take what they're taking? Well, you know, it's a case by case example, but to my knowledge, there's no real way to know. And um, it may be even harder to know and more clouded uh, the higher level athlete you are. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Tufik, it's been great to have you on. I know you're very busy, so I would love for everyone listening to enter your world a little bit and maybe follow you on social media, websites, that sort of thing. So how can people find out more about you? So yeah, you can look me up, uh, Tufik Jolde, T-O-U-F-I-C, uh, last name J-I-L-D-E-H. Uh, my Twitter is Jolde MD, same as Instagram. And uh, please reach out to me. I'm always accessible. And that's one of the things I pride myself as uh, as a surgeon. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Tufik, thanks for joining me, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. If you want to join a group of like-minded people that are all out to achieve their goals, their dreams, their aspirations, and they get the help and support from me and the other members, then my inner circle is for you. There's a link in the description for this episode to get two months free of the inner circle so you set your membership up you get two months free access hopefully i'll see you there and i look forward to helping you on your journey of achieving the life that you want